The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com forward slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus Fenstaden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good evening to you, Kobus. Good evening. Kobus, it has been an eventful week and past four or five days. Ever since on Friday, there was an announcement that came out of Beijing late in the day my time that said that China had negotiated a final settlement of restoration of diplomatic ties between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Now, I have to admit, when this first came through, I was like, huh? Really? Okay. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, because there had been discussions about China mediating in the Horn of Africa. We've talked about Xue Bing and the special envoy. We've heard over the years that China wanted to be a mediator in the Arab-Israeli conflict. Our friend Jonathan Fulton at the Atlantic Council said that was a, an initiative that nobody asked for and nobody wanted. And then we heard that China put forth a proposal to mediate or broker peace between the Russians and the Ukrainians. That too really didn't go anywhere. So you can understand a little bit why on Friday, when this word came out about the Iran-Saudi pact or deal that they came up with, there was a little bit of suspicion or skepticism or kind of like, what is this? But quickly, it evolved into that this was, in fact, the real deal. Now, to be clear here, China's top foreign policy official, Wang Yi, he had the pictures, he had the handshakes. Oman and Iraq were active behind the scenes to facilitate this. China was not involved at every step of the process, but China was instrumental in getting this over the finish line, in finalizing the deal, in bringing Iran and Saudi Arabia together to finalize this deal. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the feud that dates back decades between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and we're going to get our experts today to explain this to us, this is not just a political difference. There are deep cultural and religious differences between them. Iran is the largest Shia Muslim country in the region, and Saudi Arabia is a major, major, I'm not sure if it's the largest, but one of the largest Sunni Muslim countries in the region, and of course, home to Mecca and Medina, two of the holiest sites in the Islamic world. These countries have been loggerheads for a long time, so this breakthrough now is significant. What also happened over the weekend was as the magnitude of the deal settled in, the volume of analysis that flowed was just something that, I'll be honest with you, I have not seen in 30 years of covering China issues. And in many ways, because it tapped into two of the most pressing insecurities in the United States and Europe, both their role in the Middle East and, of course, China. And that sparked the think tanks, the news organizations, the commentators on Twitter to just go into overdrive. Then the Chinese press and the Chinese media were also quite prolific as well, in part because this was a very positive story for China. So a lot of the academics who are oftentimes very shy and reluctant to speak publicly on geopolitical issues came out, and boy, they were just you know, on fire, you know, providing context and analysis. Our edition of the newsletter on Monday 
was a special edition that was super long. And it just, we tried to encapsulate all of the different discussions that were going on. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't get through three quarters of it. It was amazing how much was going on. Kobus, then on Monday, we wake up to the news now that Chinese President Xi Jinping wants to kind of take the win that he got on Friday in the Persian Gulf, and now he wants to head to Russia to meet with Vladimir Putin. That is a report that's coming out of Reuters. Also, he wants to hold talks either by phone, I think, with President Zelensky from Ukraine. So it looks like, Kobus, that the Chinese really want to step up their game in the international mediation side of things and really to take advantage of spaces where maybe the Americans can't maneuver as well as the Chinese can, specifically their relationships with people like the Iranians, the Saudis, and the Russians, where the Chinese do have very strong ties. Yes, it certainly seems like that is the play at the moment. They, they seem to be looking for gaps where they maybe feel that the U.S. Is too, like has, has landed too strongly on one particular side of a, of a conflict, and where China can claim to have some form of neutrality. Obviously, you know, on the Russian side, I think there is very little neutrality on either of those sides. You know, so um, it'll be very interesting to see if anything comes out of that. There's been quite muted kind of response so far to the proposals put forth by China for possible kind of peace negotiations so far. So we'll see what develops there. But I think the fact that the Iran-Saudi deal came so out of the blue and surprised so many in, in Western countries, you know, kind of it does seem to signal that China is making interesting moves. You know, so it'll be very interesting to see what develops. Well, we're going to deep dive now into the Iran-Saudi deal. And just to try and get a better understanding, this is a fast-moving story, though. So we're going to do a couple of shows this week with various experts and then pick up the topic again next week. Because what we're starting to see is the third-order effects of this and the, the ramifications of it all are quite profound. And we're going to get some insight on that today. We've got two people who are following this closer than probably anybody else out there. And we're just so thrilled to have them on short notice to join us on the show. Jacopo Shita is a policy fellow at the London-based Borson Bazaar Foundation, where he focuses on China's engagement with countries both in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf, especially in Iran. Jacopo, so wonderful to finally have you on the program, and a very good evening to you in London. Thank you so much, Eric, and Combs for having me. I mean, as I was saying to you, Eric, this is my pleasure. I'm a big fan of the China Global South Network, let's say. So for me, it's, it's you know, it's an honor, probably emotional at, at the moment. So... <laughs> Well, we're, we're thrilled to have you on the show, and we're just so happy to hear that you've been following what we've been doing. And also, we're joined again on the program by our old friend Tuvia Gehring, who's a researcher with the Diane and Guilford Glazer Israel-China Policy Center at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv. And he's also a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub. But many of you may know him for his much more important work, is that he is the man behind the absolutely indispensable Discourse Power newsletter that provides these amazing translations of Chinese think tank and scholarly work. It's something that we rely on heavily, and we've been using a lot in our coverage of this story. Tuvia, thank you so much for joining us again on the program and for staying up late to be with us. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. You're too kind, and congratulations to you for the Monday newsletter. Uh, the synopsis and coverage was probably the best I've seen. And I highly recommend anyone listening to it to do as I did and subscribe to it because it is awesome. It is very valuable. And the information you're able to pack in every single line is so high and very much worth every expense. So do it. 
Well, we really appreciate it. We're, again, you're going to be my first hire when we expand our marketing department, so I, I appreciate that. Gentlemen, before we get too far into the weeds on the deal, I want to start our discussion at a slightly higher level. You've both had a few days to consider the deal and what happened in Beijing and the signing of it between the Iranians and the Saudis and the Chinese. Jacopo, let's start with you first. Give us your take based on what we know at this point, because again, this is a fast-changing story. Uh, and then, Tuvia, I'd like you to jump in right after with your assessment. I'm going to stick to my initial assessment of the thing. So this is a big diplomatic win for China, something we, or at least myself, did not expect at all. Probably this proves how bad of an as an analyst I am. But I've never expected to wake up on Friday and see, you know, a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran brought by China. So it's a huge victory. It's very interesting from my perspective that, so, you know, given all the process that was behind this uh, final step, which you briefly mentioned, basically Saudi Arabia and Iran wanted China to, you know, put its badge over it. So this is something I'm sure Tuvia uh, will discuss further, but it's 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 very interesting. I think you know. I think you know. We should really try to frame this in the context of uh, sort of China global foreign policy activism. It's something that we should look in the light of you know China global security initiative. China trying to you know propose and engage Russia and Ukraine. So I think it's part of a sort of tectonic movement that we should carefully consider. So I leave this to Tuvia, but I think, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been a pretty exceptional development, honestly. Go ahead, Tuvia. Yeah, so I, I agree. It really is exceptional. And anyone I ask, including scholars studying this, sitting in Beijing right now as we speak, they were surprised too. Some of them declared themselves that they were caught by surprise because the entire process of negotiation was shrouded in complete secrecy. Uh, they even made sure not to use English, according to Wall Street Journal report, uh, just to make sure the Americans weren't listening. And I want to emphasize that surprising as it may be to some people uh, who are not following this closely, and it is, I realize, still a niche topic. We think it's very important, but for some, it's still a niche. They're more concerned with failing banks all over the world, for example, or the war in Ukraine, of course. But uh, to people who've been following closely China's involvement in the Middle East, you see that China has become a very important player and even indispensable player to many of the countries, as you cover well in your newsletter every day. And because of that, because it was in, so involved in every single field imaginable, except for the last two, which is security and diplomacy, then uh, it was surprising for many people that went to sleep on Thursday night when the Middle East was predominated by one power and woke up Friday morning when into a multipolar world. But again, this is not something new. Chinese scholars themselves have been talking a lot about the possibility of contributing more to security and diplomacy. And by the way, it's not just the Middle East, it's globally. And you can see it from the name itself by definition with Xi's initiative, the global security initiative, the global development initiative. This is just one part of the puzzle. And my quick take about it is everyone need to take uh, their daily chill pill and uh, a deep breath. And by that, I mean everyone, China and the US included, and especially here in Israel. Before we jump to any conclusions, this is the beginning of a very long and complex process. Uh, all the power for China to 
succeeding in that. Uh, of course, it complicates the issue for the U.S. and its partners and allies in the whole region. It is very important, but also opens some opportunities. And we need to have some serious and long discussions like the one we have in here tonight. So, Jacopo, just to put everyone on the same page, can you give us an idea of actually what was actually agreed? Like, what what is what is the parameters of the deal as we see it at the moment? Yeah, well, but that that's one of the interesting things, you know. Just as as for the, the the agreement itself, there was not much publicly agreed. So basically, what we see today is a roadmap to reopen embassies. So basically, reestablishing diplomatic relations between the two countries. There's a deadline which is two months from now which doesn't seem a lot, but uh, uh, for all what happened in the Middle East, uh, it is very much a long time. And, you know, I'm quite positive and optimist about this, but it might very well collapse everything before the two months deadline. Except from that, uh, you know, we got some uh, leaks and, uh, uh, you know, inside notes uh, from, uh, you know, what has been discussed and what, you know, China, Saudi Arabia and Iran have put on the table to uh, succeed in this deal. Basically, what we are hearing is that um, Saudi Arabia basically accepted, possibly accepted to stop financing some, you know, political groups, media organization, but that are particularly focused on anti-Iran propaganda news and, and actions, if you want to say like that. On the other side, Iran seems to have promised to, you know, lower down tensions. And apparently there were rumors in the Iranian media that China unfreeze a chunk of uh, Twenty billion dollar that are um, that are stuck in Chinese banks due to fear of U.S. sanctions. So it's very much developing. Again, as Studio was saying, I think it's very important to say that you know, uh, obviously there's a lot of excitement and everyone, or a lot of people are saying that you know Saudi Arabia and Iran are at peace now. That's not true. You know, this is a, the first step of what at best will be a very very long draw, um, journey and the conclusion is rather unclear and unpredictable right now. Tuvia, I want to pick up on that theme. You are you're Israeli, you're based in Israel. You know, for anybody who's been following Arab and Mideast politics and Persian Gulf politics for the past half century at least, it's one of hope and optimism dashed by reality and you know, the sobering politics of the region being what they are. So I was a little bit bemused by the victory lap that a lot of Chinese scholars were making in the coverage that you provided in Discourse Power about how, you know, we did it. It's done. Yay. And I just thought, you guys need to, as uh, as Jacopo said, take a chill pill, or I think you said take the chill pill. Help us understand the motivations a little bit of the different powers at play here, the Saudis, the Iranians, and even the Chinese to some extent. And then we're going to get to the Israelis later because they're also part of this as well. But help us understand those motivations. And that can speak then to some of the pitfalls that may await the Chinese in guaranteeing this agreement and that it holds and is successful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just following the news in China, you think that by today, Xi Jinping uh, would have been an giving the Nobel uh, Prize for Peace. Well, that's um, what they said on social media. Everybody was like, well, yeah. he's going to get the Nobel for this, right? <laughs> you know what? I, I thought it would be funny to see Trump uh, win a Nobel Prize for Peace for the Abraham Accords and Xi together and giving them uh, the same stage. That would be interesting. But anyway, back to your question, the different motivations of China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and different actors. So for China, it is pretty obvious, mentioned by many of the analysts. It's peace and stability. China gets most of its energy imports from the Middle East, about 40%. Uh, well, not most, but uh, quite a lot. 
Also, this is what some analysts call the low-risk, high-reward move that boosts its legitimacy and prestige globally and internally at a very challenging time for China. We know it faces a lot of economic issues, demographic issues, and so on. And Xi Jinping was able to pull this off right when China was holding the two sessions where he was recrowned again for the third time. And then the propaganda apparatus said that he personally was involved in it. It's a pretty nice thing to show to your internal crowd and domestic audience and globally. Another thing is the great power competition element, which is also very important. So in the great battle of narratives, you see them pumping 24-7 now how the Middle East is now looking east. The east is rising, the west is declining. This is the beginning or the best manifestation of the Beijing model of the global security initiative of Xi Jinping. Um, These are all different codes to say how China wishes to undermine the U.S. rules-based international order and U.S. hegemony in the Middle East and particular. At the same time, it wants to show, and it even believes, it even truly believes that Chinese wisdom and Chinese solution, as they put it, can provide answers to some of the world's most contentious issues, including here in our region, because China, according to China, have figured it out. Xi Jinping, with his wisdom and acumen, was able to pinpoint the exact problems aching our region and globally. And he recognized there are four deficits that mire our world, uh, which include the peace deficit, trust, governance, and development. And because China was successful in its own development process for over 40 years in double-digit growth, then it can prescribe, as a good doctor, the best prescription for the Middle East ailments, something that the West cannot do, and the U.S., especially with its traditional security thinking, Cold War mentality, and so on. Now, back to reality, China sees, of course, a lot of real politics and opportunities in every of the countries, especially in in Iran, which is untapped potential because of being secluded from the international community for so long. And China being on Iran's good side uh, will be able to reap this seed that it has sowed. Now for Iran, of course, it also has pretty uh, obvious motivation, the first of which was its isolation and pressure internationally, internally. Um, Its alliance with Russia provided very little economic value. The brutal protests, it's uh, been going on since September. JCPOA is not moving anywhere. And, And also Iran itself has been pushing for some reconciliation with Saudi Arabia for longer than the two years uh, we mentioned because uh, of the benefits they see in better coordination and uh, again because of the many challenges they face both internally and externally and also the different challenges that Saudi Arabia poses uh, to Iran uh, one which Jacopo mentioned is the Iran International but uh, that's just uh, one anecdote in many and in China of course it sees many opportunities and things that it will never get from the US of course but also from the West which it tried before, but that didn't work out too well. And uh, undermining the U.S. regional hegemony is, you know, it's the icing on the cake. As for Saudi Arabia, it's the security, which is the most important aspect of motivation. The U.S. is supposed to be the net security provider, the sole security provider, and it failed on its watch. The most uh, notable example was the September 2019 attack. And then uh, President Trump's uh, very miserable remarks about it being Saudi problem and an American problem because no U.S. forces were involved or hit. The restriction by the U.S. of arms sales, the strong arming in Yemen, as people uh, describe it, inaction on the Iran nuclear process and even trying to 
make nice with Iran, even more than Saudi Arabia. And I'm not even mentioning President Biden, different remarks that utterly humiliated a ruling king of a Middle Eastern country, which is a pretty bad move if you consider the local cultures. And also, Saudi Arabia has very major ambitions locally, internally. If you've seen the line, you've seen the big cube now, they want to focus on development and the war in Yemen and Syria and the proxy wars with Iran have been uh, draining the resources. All the attacks on Saudi soil made it very unlucrative for investment. And by going to China, they also want to show to the U.S. that it has other options and also sends to a message to Washington that there are costs to reducing engagement in the region. If you want to focus on Eurasia and China and Russia, that's fine. But we're going to have to take care of ourselves now. And it also gives, of course, more uh, uh, leverage over Washington in the future. Uh, of course, it angered Washington a lot, that's for sure. But it, it also uh, translates to leverage. And uh, China is the largest trading partner of Saudi Arabia. It's the biggest energy consumer, great investor, crucial in energy transition. And it's also non does not interfere and does not lecture on human rights with no strings attached, etc. So... Jacopo, Tuvia mentioned the proxy wars between Saudi Arabia and Iran. I wonder if you can expand a little bit, like what has been the kind of regional impact of this rivalry and how have other kind of countries in the region been affected? Well, that's a quite kind of huge question, of course. Try to be brief and thematic if, if I can. So, of course, yes, as we were saying, this is not something, this rivalry is not something that goes on since 2016 when there was the last diplomatic spat that they are trying to reconcile now. It's something that goes back to the 1970s, to the Iranian Revolution, and so on. So, And what we see is that the sort of Saudi, I'm not sure I, you can call it a proxy war, be a debate about that, but uh, rather than focusing on the term, you know, there's a rivalry playing out in different regional countries and, and regional contexts. For sure, one is Yemen. Uh, Yemen is unfortunately the hotspot right now of this rivalry, where you have Saudi Arabia supporting the Southern Coalition, which is the one internationally recognized, and Iran supporting the Uti rebels. Uh, now, it, it's it's a complicated story, as Tuvia can, can confirm, because of course the Uti, you know, they have the financial and, and military support of Iran, but at the end of the day, they remain, you know, autonomous. They have a degree of agency. So, you know, when you look at truce that, that has been agreed in Yemen and, and protecting Yemen, it's between the Houthi and Saudi Arabia. Iran is one external actor that for sure can influence the Houthi, and we will, you know, see if this agreement helps Iran influencing the, the Houthi on that. But ultimately, it's the Houthi rebels that have the power to, you know, decide to continue attacking Saudi Arabia or protecting the truce. Then, you know, you have other hotspots all over the region, you know, from Lebanon to Iraq. So it's the real, you know, beef behind this, you know, Saudi-Iran rivalry is that it's not much about religion or ethnic politics or stuff like that. Very much a power competition that has spillovers all over the region. Now, if I might go back for a second to what Tuvia was saying about Iran's motivation, I want, just want to add one thing that I think is very interesting. You know, as Tuvia was saying, the, the Raiz administration is doing very bad internally, cracking down violently on protests. Uh, the economy is very bad right now. They're not able of, you know, reviving the Iranian economy. They're doing very bad internationally. Their reputation is very low. JCPOI is not going everywhere. Now, the interesting thing is that in terms of foreign policy, the two priorities that 
the Rabbis administration and all the technocratic slash security apparatus they represent had uh, and talked about uh, during the, you know, the electoral campaign and then made at the core of the foreign policy objective were regional dialogue and look to the East. And it's quite interesting that they somehow succeeded in mixing the two. So signing an agreement with Saudi Arabia, so regional context, with the help, with the batch of China. So the main focus of the look to the East policy upon that. So, you know, uh, from a cynical perspective, this was a success for the Iraqi administration, and I'm sure they will try to use it to some sort of create some red around the flag in Iran. Not sure how it works because there's a lot of disaffection among the Iranian people right now, rightfully among the Iranian people right now. So a lot of experts like yourselves have said, keep your eye on Yemen, and that's going to be the real test if these two parties are serious about reconciliation. And I just want to read a quote, Jacopo, just to pick up on some of the things that you said. This came from Bobby Gush, who is one of the prominent uh, opinion writers over at Bloomberg. He said, quote, the agreement announced in Beijing is unlikely to greatly alter the risks of conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia, but it does give China ownership of a problem nobody else wants. Good luck with that. And I think that is interesting because a lot of people see that, is China capable of being the guarantor of this agreement. So what happens if Yemen continues to flare up in conflict fueled by Saudi and Iranian weapons and money and proxy fighters? And then does this agreement really stand up? Eric, may I throw in uh, another question, which is not the best way to answer to a question, but I think, you know, yes, Bobby Bush's question is right. I would say, I would ask it, but do China care about uh, this agreement at the sole, long-term sort of disagreement? So do they care about being the guarantor or are they just happy that there's some sort of agreement on the table and then they would not care much? I don't know. I don't know the answer. Just perhaps Tuvia has an idea on that. Yeah, maybe Tuvia, before we go on, maybe you can take a stab at that question. Yeah, so I love uh, Bobby. Uh, I don't uh, agree with him on that. I think that the current development is, as someone said, as high reward and low risk for China. And, and what do I mean by that is right now China can do its victory lap and cut all the ribbons and crack open the champagne. And if things go south, because, you know, the Middle East is the land of the where the impossible becomes possible until someone stabs you in the back. Uh, and this is not something that... Uh, uh, Tuvia, your cynicism is noted for the record, <laughs> by the way. Uh, well, uh, welcome to uh, our neighborhood. So th this is just the hard reality. Uh, usually as a region has this tendency of sucking in major powers and then slapping them in the face with a baseball bat. So China is very aware of that as a good student of history. And what it was able to do here is, first of all, inflate the meaning of this deal, which is basically prodded two sides that were already in it in the first place. Uh, again, I'm not trying to underplay it. It is uh, an achievement, but still put things again in perspective. And the low risk part is if things really do go south, China could just take a step back because it has no forces here uh, stationed in the region. Uh, it can say that, you know, well, we tried. Uh, the two countries are already in a very complex uh, 
relationship and uh, it was uh, you know a tough shot we took it but too bad and it, it doesn't have to take responsibility for the failure because as we all know China never fails it's never wrong of course and China still is uh, our uh, again cynicism has been noted uh, his friend and the colleague uh, senior uh, colonel uh, retired Joe Bo said China does not want to be the police of the world that hasn't changed again being smart enough to learn from U.S. and others' mistakes in the region. Uh, so I don't think this motivation has changed at all. So even now with all the great success, I believe that uh, when a few days uh, will have passed, the commentaries inside China will have come down a bit. And, you know, if they do get the, the slap in the face from reality, from the region, then uh, we're going to see China disengage or at least try to downplay the meaning of the developments and still focus on the positive aspects. Eric, um, I wanted to ask you, actually, you're in you're in the United States at the moment. From the outside, like, as I was following the coverage, like, you know, like, there were some big statements being made, like, you know, people were saying, like, wow, this is the birth of a multipolar world, you know, the, the unipolar era is over. So I was wondering how the coverage looked in within the US, in the, within the US. It's like, was there kind of panic and dismay? Or was everything overshadowed by the failure of Silicon Valley Bank? Well, it depends, A, what media you're consuming, and B, what day you're watching or consuming that media. So again, the United States is a highly fractured country in terms of media consumption. So the narratives on right-wing conservative media were, henny penny, the sky is falling. This is the end of it. It's all Biden's fault. They even somehow worked it all into Hunter Biden and that laptop, which was quite <laughs> remarkable how they f linked those two together. But they did. And so the New York Post, Newsmax, Fox News had a parade of people showing that this is the failure of American foreign policy. This is the end of U.S. hegemony. And their implicit criticism is that if Donald Trump or a conservative president was in power, this wouldn't have happened. And they don't kind of take into account the historical buildup to this, that it wasn't just something that's happened in the past 24 months. Since Biden has been in office, this is something that has been building for a long time. So if you looked on Saturday, the day after the announcement was made, all of the major media put it on front page, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, it was front page news. What was interesting, though, is that it had a shelf life of about 24 hours as a story because the Silicon Valley bank bankruptcy really has shocked the system, and especially out here in California, and I'm in the Silicon Valley, so it is you know, a much bigger story. I don't think it broke through the mainstream that much, both because of the bank, but also because China and Middle East stories. There's a fatigue in mainstream U.S. about a lot of Middle East stories, so they don't really gain a lot of traction. It was interesting because, for me, what I was contrasting against was last week, both the U.S. House and Senate held a number of very high-profile committees talking about how China is really the, the second stop on the way to Satan. And it was really interesting to contrast how so much of the reaction in many parts of the world, and even the Maldives, for example, came out and said this was a good thing. And I guess that's interesting, the disconnect between the rhetoric in Washington and between a lot of the global discourse around China. And of course, Tuvia, that's what you follow. Tuvia, there was a very similar response in Israel as there was here in the United States, which was, holy crap, what just happened? And this is not good. And this is particularly bad news for Israel, in part because Israel sees Iran as its primary rival. So can you talk to us a little bit about the response in Israel and the, the various complexities in the calculations that are underway now about how to deal with this? Yeah, sure. So first off, Israel was not, I don't think at least, a factor 
in the considerations or the debates going on in Beijing. I think I don't think it was even taken into account. They had much bigger fish to fry there, and Israel was just too small of a player, as, as much as we like to think of ourselves as the center of the universe. And another thing is Israel at the moment, in the last few months, is undergoing a very big judicial overhaul that has turned every issue whatsoever to a partisanship that is very familiar to American listeners and very pernicious debates at that. So the first reactions were from the opposition blaming the coalition of Netanyahu that it happened on his watch and then the coalition of Netanyahu blaming the opposition that it it in fact happened on their watch and then just this partisan bickering and infighting that has nothing to do with what happened. It's just part of the debate. But now we have a a bit more serious debates in the last uh, few hours coming out by smart people. And like me, they said, first, you need to take a deep breath and not sensationalize it. The second thing is you need to have very deep discussions of what it means. Yes, it does complicate Israel's situation in the greater Middle East, especially if there were any inspiration Uh, to create an anti-Iranian kind of coalition with the Arab world, which uh, I don't think Israeli policymaker necessarily wanted to do or thought it was achievable. But uh, for sure, but by legitimizing and normalizing and institutionalizing relations with what we see as a rogue regime that spreads terrorism and extremism, and that's not going away anytime soon, and by giving it more access to funds to the IRGC, for example, and its activities, every dollar and yuan they make now, thanks to China is going to be turned into rockets aimed uh, at uh, my little apartment. I think that's an important point. But can I stop you? What is the IRGC? Uh, s- sorry, sure. So the IRGC is the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. It's the state within a state, uh, so-called uh, Jacopo. Please uh, jump in uh, if you'd like to comment on it. I-, I think it's better that Jacopo describe it because he's the Iran scholar here. And Jacopo, while you comment on that, I think it's a very important distinction that's been made that it was security officials who were negotiating in Beijing, not political officials officials. And then on top of that, as far as we know right now, and I'd love to hear what you think about this, the IRGC has not publicly commented on the deal and whether it supports it or opposes it. So if you could give us a little bit of insight on the IRGC issue that uh, Tuvia brought up. Yeah. So, well, of course, uh, Tuvia was saying a very important thing, you know, the IRGC, so the, the Guardians of the Revolution, uh, which sounds like a Marvel movie, probably is a Marvel movie, I don't know. But it's it's very much a state within the state in Iran. So it's this uh, sort of uh, militia, or at least something that was born as a militia to defend the revolution and defend the supreme leader. And since, you know, the 1979 and, and the 80s has turned into, you know, a, a powerhouse within the Iranian state. So they control a huge chunk of the economy, they control a huge chunk of the money coming in from oil exports, and they're really a political force that is probably much stronger than many of the, you know, the few elected officials that Iran still has in this uh, sort of a stranger, semi-authoritarian regime, whatever you would call it. Uh, not- what about their role in uh, foreign policy? Yeah, exactly. That's that's the thing. You know, what is interesting is that, you know, um, it's interesting, as you were saying, Eric, that there's not been an official reaction from them. And my cynic understanding and explanation is that, you know, of especially with the Raizid administration, we are so much embedded in the power circle that basically, you know, that's the imprinting on this. So as you were saying, you know, this has been uh, negotiated by the security apparatus in Iran. And the security apparatus, 
as strong links with RRGC. You know, as to you, you were saying, you know, what's the role of RRGC in the run foreign policy? You know, the most famous commander of the RRGC was Soleimani, and uh, he was deemed to be provocative, but probably with a lot of right, was, was called the real foreign minister of Iran. And this tells you a lot, you know, and, and tells you a lot, especially if you think that at that time, you know, five years ago, four years ago, you know, Iran had a pretty a smart and, and potable, if you want to say like that, a foreign minister, which was Javad Zarif. Right now, you know, the current foreign minister is frankly an unimpressive guy. And, you know, the, uh, this, this feeling is really that, you know, the IRGC, this, this state within the state apparatus that oversights, you know, the, the export of the revolution, not only the defense, but also the export of the Iranian revolution. And two of you, you know, can, can say more about this regarding Israel and Palestine and so on is what is really, you know, moving the, the piece on, on the chest in, in, in Iran, at least in the economic slash security apparatus. So I think, you know, it's not necessarily surprising they are not commenting this, but I'm sure they are fully on board with something like that. And probably there's some hubris within the uh, IRGC and, and, and the more, you know, outliner circles in Iran that, you know, right now this is a big win for Iran and Iran, with the help of China, is somehow, you know, controlling Saudi Arabia. So they will definitely frame like that. And so, yeah, you know, um, I'll leave to you to finish a comment on this, but but I think, you know, it, it was very important to break up, broke up the, the IRGC thing because it's a central part of the current security and political parties in Iran. Uh, yeah, so I just want to add one point uh, I didn't mention before is uh, this kind of development does not necessarily impede Israeli's normalization process with Saudi Arabia. And you have a, a recent example with the UAE, which normal, had normalized relations with Israel, despite uh, normalizing at the same time with Iran. It's on the contrary, our relationship with the UAE has strengthened more than ever before. And I think that, again, China perhaps uh, inflated the, the meaning of this little process, which is just the beginning, as we said, all the different uh, disagreements and lack of trust between the Saudis and the Iranians and Iran's revolutionary ambitions, as Jacopo mentions, have not gone away last time I checked. Uh, so all the different actors here that are still feeling a distrust and threat from Iran, we need to come to Israel, uh, which is a close strategic ally of the United States or a close ally of the United States on security. And the US is still the net security provider here by far. Tuvia, a few hours before we recorded, Wall Street Journal reported that China is planning a summit between Iran and the Gulf Cooperation Council that they're planning to host it, I assume. Um, and so I, I was, yeah, I was wondering what you thought of that, and then also kind of what, what you think the kind of the impact of a, of the deal might be in the for the wider region. So this also is not uh, novel. China had uh, made similar initiatives. All the time when it talks about uh, regional security, one of its uh, great solution is create this kind of regional framework because our region lacks this kind of inclusive, regional, comprehensive, uh, multilateral platform, for example, like they have in ASEAN in Southeast Asia. That's a very major issue that we're dealing with. And China thought that, well, if it works for ASEAN, it should work for here uh, in our region. And uh, because the Gulf and Iran are the biggest or the principal contradiction, then this is the way to go. So first, it was the Russians that uh, in 2019 that made similar proposal, which uh, China supported. But then uh, when the Abraham Accords made the breakthrough, 
China, a couple of times, it made the suggestion to hold this uh, summit between Gulf countries and Iran. But uh, back then, everyone uh, thought it was risible and, and that uh, there was no substance behind it because China really doesn't care about these kind of issues. But uh, I don't think anyone is laughing now. And you see that uh, it uh, is taken more seriously by the international press, uh, like the Wall Street Journal, which has been doing a good uh, job with all their scoops. So I think it's a time that we start, if you haven't already, to take China as a serious actor here in the Middle East, not just on energy and trade, but also geopolitically speaking. Gentlemen, let's wrap up our discussion to help our listeners who don't follow this as closely as you do to understand what are the key markers that you're going to be looking for in the next one to two weeks as to whether or not this agreement and this new, more robust Chinese international diplomacy is going to take off or not. So, Jacopo, let's start with you. What are you going to be looking for as a way to help our listeners to understand what they should be looking for? Well, that's an interesting question because I think, you know, two, probably one, two weeks is, is too short uh, of, a, of a time frame to appreciate uh, movements. But certainly, you know, if we have positive news coming from Yemen, for example, as we would talk about this, they could be a sign, uh, you know, things are moving in a certain positive direction. I would also, you know, take a look, closer look how this, this, this things that we just talked about. So this idea of China GCC meeting, China GCC Iran meeting goes or goes on. If there's other there developments of that, some sort of a more concrete announcement coming from uh, Chinese uh, or uh, regional authorities. And another aspect, you know, I'm more biased uh, looking at what happens in Iran, uh, would be important to see if uh, this agreement really brings some sort of tectonic movement for what concern the hostage um, diplomacy, which is a noble thing to, to call it like that. But, you know, there are movements uh, in the past few days where it seems that the United States and Iran are getting closer to Pfizer exchange, uh, where in the case of Iran, uh, you know, there are, there are a few American hostages, literally. Pfizer, I don't think is, is the right word. You describe them hostages is the best one. And also on the JCVOA side, you know, there might be positive spillover of this agreement uh, if, you know, things go a little bit towards up sort of uh, at least re-engagement in significant discussion between Iran and the international community. Tuvia, let's get your take. Yeah, so what to look for for me, of course, Yemen is uh, one thing, but there's also other regional hotspots uh, here, the Israeli and the Palestinians, of course, not uh, all of them directly related to it, but they will affect it. So that's something you want to keep a close eye on. What interests me is the U.S. response. So it happened over the weekend. I don't know if it was deliberate, but uh, people in the U.S., like everyone else uh, in the world, were caught off guard. And we got this very... One, as far as I could tell, polite response by one U.S. speaker that said that this is a positive, could be a positive development. Uh, after all, the U.S. Uh, had been trying to support or facilitate this kind of reconciliation uh, when it happened in Iraq and Oman, and it perhaps may pave the way for the renewal of the JCPOA. Although I won't hold my breath on that. But uh, in the next few days, we want to look very carefully on what the U.S. response is going to be. And we have a very nice analogy because back when the Abraham Accords uh, cut the rest of the world also by surprise uh, back in 2020, including China, so China too, 
anything the U.S. Uh, touches is like Midas in reverse, right? It's the worst thing ever. But even with the Abraham Accords, China had to admit that maybe the Trump administration was able to do some positive things because after all, normalizing relationship between Israel and Arab countries, it's a positive change for this very contentious area. Unfortunately, over time, because of the U.S.-China relationship and the uh, uh, terrible nature it is in at the moment, then China's approach uh, changed a bit, especially on the rhetorical level. And they begin to see the Abraham Accords and following that, the I2U2 between Israel, the UAE, the US and India, you know, again, is a terrible thing that is called warlike and coalition and uh, hegemonic and whatever. And I'm concerned that it this will happen Similarly, with the U.S. response, where the first reaction, which is the natural one, it's a good thing because it lessens the flames. But uh, over time, they will find ways how to frame it as the worst thing. And also with the domestic voices, as you quoted in your newsletter today, with all the especially Trumpists and MAGA voices, then there is a possibility that they will hijack the discourse. And it's very important that we don't go this way. And we do try to see how the US and China, if not cooperating, which is, you know, something uh, very ideal and quixotic, but at least operating in parallel for the benefit and stability of the region. Yeah. So the reference that uh, Tuvia was talking about was US National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby gave a press briefing on Friday after the announcement came through. And he said, listen, this is good. We were in touch with the Saudis. So apparently the Saudis were briefing the Americans throughout the process of the negotiations with the Chinese. So they were in the loop on it. Since Friday, we haven't heard any official comment from the White House or the State Department. We may hear something this week. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on the road in Ethiopia and Niger. Uh, so he's back in Africa this week. And so the traveling press corps with the secretary may uh, ask him about that. Obviously, anytime the secretary is in Africa, there's always questions about China. So he, uh, he will have to be confronted with that. So it'll be interesting to see if that comes up on the agenda. Gentlemen, thank you both for helping us to better understand this incredibly complex issue. We hope we can come back to you uh, later on for an update based on what happens in the weeks and months ahead. Jacopo Shita is a policy fellow at the London-based Borson Bazaar Foundation, where he focuses on China's engagement with countries in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf, and he is especially keen on talking about all the things going on with Iran. Jacopo, you are a fountain of knowledge on Twitter. Where can people find you to follow what you're reading and writing these days? Yeah, I mean, Twitter is is where I'm, my public work is is disseminated. So Jacopo Shita, you will find me with my name and surname, very simply. But yeah, I'm publishing stuff with the Boston Bazaar Foundation where I work and, and you know, a few other stuff around. But basically, if you Google my name or you put the hashtag China Iran, you will find my stuff around uh, and... And yeah, thank you so much, Eric and Cobus, for having me today. The discussion was amazing. You know, I'm, I'm best pre-dinner discussion I have done in my life. Thank you so much. Fantastic. We really appreciate your time. And Tuvia, you are a researcher at the Diane and Guilford Glazer Israel China Policy Center at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv, and also a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub. You also recently penned a fascinating paper well in advance of this news at the Atlantic Council about Chinese foreign policy in the Middle East. Where can people find that and where can they find you on Twitter as well? 
Oh, well, thank you. So on Twitter, my handle is Garen Tuvia, just my full name. And as for the report, it's called China's New Security Architecture for the Middle East on the Atlantic Council. It's their name, China, not mine. And uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to publish it just before this big announcement this week. So really all the stars online, not just for Beijing, Saudi Arabia and Iran, but also for me. Yeah, it's a great foundational piece of work to be able to understand how this all fits together. So I highly recommend that. I'm going to put links to that in the show notes. I'm also going to put a link to sign up for the Discourse Power newsletter that Tuvia produces. And it's absolutely fascinating. How often is it coming out now, Discourse Power? I do not commit to it any uh, on a timetable. Okay, so it's just, just when you can. Just whenever. Right? It's a passion project, as you know. Just whenever I can and whenever it's relevant. And it's really particularly germane for our audience because he's focusing on China Global South, oftentimes related to China and the Middle East specifically. One of the things that really surprises me about the tone and tenor of the academic discourse that you highlight is how acidic and nasty it can get. I mean, really, just, it's not at all like the discourse that we hear on the outside, you know. Oh, wait Wait till you see the next issue. Wait till you see the next issue. I'm going to hype it here because it's going to blow your mind how insane it is and pernicious. But, uh, you know, look forward to it. Yeah, it's something we're looking forward to. Because, you know, you see the, the Chinese propaganda and the Chinese statements coming out of MOFA are very, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs are very controlled, very disciplined, oftentimes, you know. Well, with Qinggang uh, last week, I don't know if it's... Yeah, oh, no, Qing, that, you're talking about the press conference last week. And... Uh, yeah. that he gave yeah, yeah, boy. Yeah, for sure. And I didn't realize, you were enlightening me on this, that I always saw Qing Gang as a more moderate you know, fellow because I didn't know him prior to, I wasn't familiar with his background prior to his post as ambassador to the US where he did come off as a, as a more moderate. But I've since been told that he was really a wolf warrior prior to that and very much aligned with the, the Zhao Lijian and those guys, the, you know, the really aggressive you know, take it to the mat, wolf warrior style politics prior to going to the U.S. Yeah, Zhao Lijian looked up to Qing Gang and he has, he's much more shrewd than him and he's better diplomat too. Uh, and he did a good job in the U.S. Uh, for sure. That's why uh, it's so surprising uh, to know. But he, he can be very toxic in his comment, acerbic about the U.S. And uh, now he's going to act the part just the same way he did in Washington. Now he's sitting in Beijing. He's part of the state council now. Uh, He's pretty young. He has a long career ahead of him. And he knows how to play the tunes that the commander likes. Uh, And he's going to play it well. Well, I guess that's the order of the day. Certainly in the U.S., they have their... Their fair share of wolf warriors yeah, as well. So, I mean, it is what it is. Yeah, the John, John Wayne committee. Yeah, the John uh, Wayne. I, I, we don't have an equivalent of wolf warriors, but uh, I think we do need a term for it here. But uh, So I, I call it the John, John Wayne enough. committee if it, if it works for you. I'm not know. entirely sure that anybody under the age of 65 knows who John Wayne is, but we, I think we need a more contemporary character, uh, you know. But uh, nonetheless, your point is well taken. I'll, I'll think about it. I, I wanted to ask Kobus a question, uh, if that's okay. I don't remember if it was you asked me or someone else before. I've been doing lots of interviews now. And uh, I'd like to spitball a bit with you on how China may proceed globally. Because we know, for one, as Eric mentioned, it's taking another shot at uh, Ukraine after it released its completely forgettable 12 clause peace plan, whatever that is. And uh, now it's trying for real and people taking it more seriously. Do you think somewhere in your vicinity it's going to engage more where uh, it failed in the past or was more of a a semi-actor there or how they call it, like quasi-mediator, as uh, Sundagang puts it. What do you you think? 
I think it might, but at the moment it seems to be leaning into high profile kind of you know opportunities so so you know so it might be that that africa is, is a little bit off the radar at the moment you know particularly particularly now that now that ethiopia the the conflict is as as quieted down you know so so we might you know the, china keeps kind of you know making these these um noises in in relation to peace in sahel for example but as they, they've proven very kind of careful of to to not get too involved and to not not to commit themselves yeah i, I don't i don't think so I, th i think i think these kind of i think china has probably already explored all of its options in africa and i don't think at the moment they see any real kind of low-hanging fruit where they can kind of swoop in and have a big deal of a big settlement you know and, and have that kind of reputational Uh, pay off and then move along you know kind of all, all of the conflicts in africa tend to be ones where you need to really need to be on the ground for a long time so you know i think china is generally not very enthusiastic about that so i don't particularly see that you know kind of happening in the near future but who knows you know they're, they're really they're trying out all kinds of things so you know it's very interesting to watch yeah cobus it's interesting how they've been suspiciously quiet or noticeably quiet on the yes. war in the DRC yes. that is no, escalating, no, given no the fact that the Chinese that have yeah. not a mention at all, but they have real vested interests there, and particularly in the southern and eastern DRC. So it's, they, but they have said nothing on that. And that war, Tuvia, just for your benefit as a Middle East expert, is as intractable in many ways as anything that you'll find in the Arab world. So they have stayed very clear out of that. And, I, and also... As we talked about, the Horn of Africa was a whole was a big giant nothing burger. I mean, the Chinese came out with a special envoy, said they were going to, you know, they they did a listening tour and they did all that, and it just kind of vaporized into nothing. So it's unlikely that they're going to really step up their mediation efforts in in, in Africa for any of those conflicts. Yeah. I think the, my, my concern is China's going to get high on its own supply and start believing the propaganda it uh, propagates now on its success. And uh, you saw the farcical and uh, satirical even uh, takes by Chinese scholars, you know, talking about the triangular tables uh, and how it proves that only China could pull it off with really all this uh, cultural essentialism about the uh, Chinese uh, peaceful genes and uh, all that jazz. And my concern with Xi Jinping's China, I, I don't think it's 100% bluster. I think some of them actually believe this crap. And uh, they perhaps overestimate themselves and their own power. Yes, and but, but let me push is, back uh, on you a little bit. Let me push back on you a little bit here. This is a big win. They deserve a week of... Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I don't want to... They deserve a week of celebrating and of kind of being stupid and exaggerating and kind of... I mean, and especially for a China that has never played this role before. Certainly for the Americans or the French or the Europeans who've played international arbitration roles in the past. So I think I agree with you that some of it is ridiculous, but I also think that it is, it's hard one. They've been actively involved in diplomacy in these parts of the world for the past eight, nine years, since 2014. I think I'm going to give them this week to kind of be like, wow. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, me too. I, I said in, in our recording that I don't want to underplay it because it really is an achievement. The problem is that Chinese are overplaying it. So in other parts too, in the US, they are overplaying the uh, GOP uh, party especially. And we need to bring everyone back to reality. So, Well, it, it is an election year, of course. We're getting in, I mean, and we're getting into the stupid phase of American politics, given the fact that we're in the, the year 
running up to a presidential election. So yeah, but but we definitely need to give uh, the Chinese credit where credit is due. But uh, they also need to start taking some responsibility if this thing is not going to work out because all the money and investment again going to Iran is going to be just concentrated in a single red dot over my forehead in the future and. For them, there's this moral hazard that a couple of dead Jews is not a really big issue. The big issue is the Middle East starting a war or Iran becoming nuclear and we have a nuclear cascade. That's the big issue. If if a couple of Jews die or Kurds uh, die for that matter, that's something China can absorb. And now China is reaping all the benefits. But if things go sideways, then what will China do? It will do nothing. It will step back and let the U.S. and the real adults handle the disaster that it it helped create. No, 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 no. Here's what's going to happen. I can guarantee you, and I'm 100% certain, that if this thing flops and goes south, the one certainty that we have, okay, bar none, is that China is going to blame the U.S. for the failure. Oh, for sure. Amen. That's it. That is the only thing we can guarantee out of this, that it's not because of anything China did or Iran did. I mean, Iran can start hurling missiles into Yemen, Jacopo, and that will be somehow America's fault. That That is the only thing we can guarantee of. L- let me give you the last word, because we do have a policy of trying to, to wrap up podcasts under an hour, because nobody likes to listen to podcasts for more than an hour. Jacopo, give us your final thoughts before we say goodbye. Well, final thought is, again, as Stuvia was saying before, you know, just chill a little bit and, you know, just watch what's going to happen. China's not going to, you know, reshape the Middle East. Uh, the United States will stay there. And so, you know, all the hype uh, is, is necessary, is interesting. We will follow it. We will capitalize on that, try to make some money publishing stuff. But, you know, it's not going to be the chain, the, the end of the world. This this deal, but it's important. So, uh, again, thank you so much for the conversation. For me, it was great being here. Fantastic. Well, thank you, gentlemen. We really appreciate it. Once again, all of your insights, and we're going to put all of the links to your work in the show notes. We'll leave the discussion there. Again, Kobus and I are writing about this every single day in our newsletter for subscribers. If you'd like to join Tuvia and our growing community of readers around the world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe, and you'll get a 30-day free trial. We try to show all of the different angles. And again, our objective here is not to persuade you to think one way or another about anything that China is doing, but to give you the information that you can then make up your own mind and to bring you voices like Jacopo and Tuvia and what they're thinking and writing so that, again, that can get into your feed. And the whole point of what we're trying to do is to save you time. It is so hard to keep up with all of this stuff. So we spend, you know, it took us almost 15 hours this weekend to put this newsletter together. We go through all of those feeds so you don't have to and then consolidate down into a digest. So go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Cobus and I will be back again later this week for our Africa show. And we've got a fantastic conversation scheduled with a Chinese attorney by the name of Kai Xue, who was on our show four or five years ago. He's a prominent commentator in Chinese politics, and he's going to talk both about the Middle East deals as well as what China's doing in Africa. So keep an eye out for that in the feed. Until next week, for Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South Project on Twitter at China GS Project and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at ChinaGlobalSouth.com where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's ChinaGlobalSouth.com. <laughs>